This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is going to be a fun message uh, for me. It's actually a reprise message uh, dedicated to my kiddos. Uh, We had uh, two years ago, almost to the day, I had a message called The Bowl of Peanuts. And uh, for some reason, peanuts, uh, it's just a funny food. If you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna laugh at a food, you don't laugh at. Well, I was gonna say a tomato, and then I thought of Bob the tomato. Maybe you would. <laughs> but a peanut, otherwise known as a goober, is just a funny food, and so there's something humble, innately woven into a peanut, and there's something powerful about about the story of the peanut in our country, that forces a reprise. I, I get so excited about this story. And I just can't wait to give it to you. But there's also a very personal dimension to this. Hudson, uh, as a result of the last time I gave the bowl of peanuts, started a ministry called the Bowl of Peanuts. And uh, it's basically a way of raising money so he can buy Bibles to give to people. And I just want uh, my son to know that as a father, I'm very supportive of his ministry. So this is a reprise to give fresh wind behind his ministry visions. But it all started, uh, the term bowl of peanuts started because I was in the living room trying to share something with my kids. And you know how you reach, you know, as a, as a parent, you're sort of reaching for an illustration or a metaphor sometimes. And so I said something like, hey, guys, uh, you know, they were really struggling with some attitude issues. We had some fussiness. We had some tattling going on. We had some criticism going on. And so daddy was trying to show them, you know, I asked them what their position was, and they told me that it was in Jesus, that they had position. So I said, hey, and there's no reason you need to be behaving this way. You have access to everything you need to be able to live right. So there's really no excuse here, guys. And so I said, imagine in the middle of this table is a bowl of... And I think I had something else first. I don't remember what it was, but I said something. I go, no, 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 peanuts. And so from that point forward, it became the bowl of peanuts. And little did I know how deeply that would impact me, impact my kids, hopefully impact you, because ironically, the story of the peanut is a very big part of this country in which we live, and it's also a big part of my life in my development as a Christian. And so I know it sounds strange, the story of a peanut it's odd what impacts us. I don't know if you've ever just taken time to sort of map out the things that have most impacted your life and just sort of the stories, the illustrations, the things that have most said it to you. And this is one of those stories that just says something. And I want it to freshly reverberate in this room and out of this room. I want you to take something with you, okay? Whatever's in this story of the peanut is worth taking with you, all right? Aren't you guys excited now? Some of you that were here two years ago are like, what's the story of the peanut? You better remember. I can't believe you forgot the sermon already. See, another reason why I need to give this again. 
So we changed the name. It's no longer called the Bowl of Peanuts. Now it's the Power of the Peanut. I mean, that gives it sort of a freshness, okay? So you know the difference between the first one and the, and the second one. And the subtitle's different, too, because I'm going to have a little different emphases in this one. A study in solving impossible dilemmas. Almost every single one of us. Now, I don't remember, when, like when I was really young, if I had impossible dilemmas. It seems like I probably did, you know, but the things that you think are impossible when you're young, it's like as an adult, you're like, come on, that's, that's easy. Compared to what we face when we're older, and it's like, just seems impossible. Could you imagine God the whole time is like, uh, pff, that's easy. In other words, to God, our impossibilities are, pff, it's ridiculous. Why in the world are you stumbling over that? Why are you fearful of that? Why are you anxious? Don't you realize who I am? That's the mental picture that I think comes with uh, the story of the, the storm on, on the lake when Jesus is taking a nap. Do you guys remember that? The boat is filling up with water and the disciples are panicking. And what's Jesus doing? Uh, sleeping. The one time we see Jesus sleeping in the entire Bible, okay, is right then. And he's taking a nap when they're in jeopardy. Since their lives were in jeopardy. Now, I... I wake up pretty easily. I'm, I can't imagine sleeping. Could you imagine water splashing all over you? And you're like, <laughs> I still have a hunch that he had one of those eye, you know, things like going like this. And then he <laughs> See, what he was doing is he was beckoning his disciples to join him. He is the way. And his behavior is the pattern. And oftentimes in the midst of trial, we're up bailing water, trying to solve our solutions in our own strength. When in fact, what we should have done, and could you imagine if we could rewrite the story of history and we could do it the way it was supposed to be done? See, sometimes in the Bible, you see it the way it was supposed to be done, and sometimes you see it the way it wasn't supposed to be done, so we learn from it. For instance, don't pull an Ananias and Sapphira. Don't pull a Judas. You know, there's various stories in there. It's like, oh, okay, we don't do that. And this is one of the stories where Jesus corrects their behavior, which, we, which means we know that they did the wrong thing. They panicked. They tried to wake up. Come on, why isn't he waking up? Doesn't he realize we're in trouble? Could you imagine if Peter took the lead in a different direction? Instead of giving way to panic, he gives way to following Jesus. And he says, hey guys, I know we're in a crisis here, but remember who's in the boat with, it, with us, the Messiah. And he lays down next to Jesus and closes his eyes. Are you serious, Peter? He goes, yes, I am serious. And every one of them lays down in the midst of a storm and pulls at Jesus. And then Jesus looks up and he goes, well done, guys. And then he goes, peace be still. In other words, he has it all in the hollow of his hand. A storm isn't too much for him. It is too much for us. I, I realize that. I mean, they were fishermen. If any group of guys could feel comfortable in the midst of a storm, who would it be? Those guys. I mean, I can understand Eric Ludy panicking a little in a, in a storm. But these guys... It must have been a really bad storm. And yes, I bet you've had some really bad storms in your life. Maybe you're in the middle of one. However, the key is to look at Jesus and to recognize that he is bigger than this. So a study in solving impossible dilemmas. The bowl of peanuts. So what it represented on the Ludi uh, living room coffee table is the supply that God has made for us all. You see, if you're in Christ, what's your position? In Christ. If you're in Jesus, the way you enter into Jesus is by faith. So by believing in Jesus, you enter into his supply, his work on the cross. What he did on the cross is something you couldn't pull off. And unless you could pull it off, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. 
But since he pulled it off, he makes a way for you to share in his work. And so by faith, you step into his work. And when he died on that cross, he worked for you. When he was buried, he worked for you. And he buried your old life. And when he resurrected, he worked for you. And now you share in a resurrection, a newness of life. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he took you with him. Simply because you believed in him. Not because you'd pulled off some great feat. You weren't the one that did all the work. He did. Your job was to simply believe in him. So when you did, you enter into what's known as the kingdom of heaven. The great treasury, the storehouse of grace. And everything that you need for life and godliness is made available to you. That's what the bowl of peanuts is. It's just like a bowl that is bottomless and and you can reach in and pull out as much of that grace as you want. But that's what you need to make it. And so I was telling my kids, how ridiculous is it to have all these weaknesses, you know, to you know, be, have a critical attitude and be frustrated, to be uh, grouchy, to be fussy, when you could just reach in and grab a peanut and it would solve your problem. And this is grace. This will solve it. You're feeling hungry? Well, guess what? There it is. You need a little protein, you know, because your uh, blood sugar is a little unstable. There it is right there. Everything you need to stabilize and be strong is right there in a bowl on the coffee table. How ridiculous is it? For you to keep having your problem and not go to that bowl and solve your problem. So if you have a problem, Jesus has made a solution for you. My kids' impossible dreams. So remember, this is sort of dedicated to the Ludi kids. And you can listen in and share in it. But uh, one of the things that I want my kids to realize is that what God has supplied for us is not just enough to sustain us. It is more than sufficient to enable these bodies to fulfill a task on this earth that would change the course of history. In other words, that what God has supplied us is sufficient, again, not to just cause us to make it through and somehow just survive life, but to change and alter the world. We have been given that which we need to thrive. And so what I always want my kids doing is praying impossible prayers. And so that's what we do. We have an exercise saying, okay, guys, do you have an impossible prayer that you're working on? And so Dub's impossible prayer, as of right now, unless he's changed it, is that he wants the Ludi family to be the most Jesus-teaching family on earth. I like that. Keep praying it, bud. And how about Harper's? Harper's is that we would be the happiest family in the world. Uh, I like that. Uh, And then Hudson's, when I asked Hudson, uh, he said he wants all the public school system to teach creation and no longer teach evolution. Whoa, that's a big one. Uh, As if the other ones were easy. (laughs) However, it's like that's the way I want my kids thinking. That's the way I want them praying. I want them praying to a big God. We have a tendency as parents, I I, I have the same tendency, to want to get our kids down to the level of what God could easily achieve instead of what would demand God to be God. All right, the story of the peanut. The story of the peanut is quite amazing. Now, some of you in here, especially of the homeschooled variety, you learn a little bit more about history than the average character does. And so you might get these extra wrinkles. I don't know how the story of the peanut could ever be left out of history in this country because it is right at the very center of value. It's funny because most of you know about the Civil War and most of you know about the emancipation of the slaves uh, at the time of Abraham Lincoln's presidency. But very few of you know that the slaves were actually not set free legally. Well, they were set free legally. They were not set free practically. 
You see, they had a serious problem still, and that's where the peanut comes in. They were still slaves. They were just not slaves to slave owners anymore, but they were slaves to something we could call cotton. And as a result, they could not function in life, and their lives were dwindling and getting lesser and lesser in its strength over time. Though they were emancipated from slavery, they were still enslaved. And thus the story of the peanut is actually a huge player in our country's history. So we're going to go through the story. Let me introduce you to the players. The slave in the story is going to be us. Okay, because to understand the gospel, this is a parallel with the gospel. It's truly extraordinary. Written in the history of our country is a parallel for our lives. But we're the slaves. King Cotton is sin in the flesh, symbolically, in this story. Now, I feel bad because cotton isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But in this time, I think you'll begin to realize cotton itself, I mean, it's a nice, cheery-looking product. It's white and fluffy. I mean, how harmless can you get? That's one of the dangers of it. It looks harmless. This is some serious stuff. Not because it in and of itself is dangerous. It's what it represented at the time, which was greed and power. The boll weevil, which I'll explain and even show you a picture. It's one of Hudson's favorite pictures out of all my sermons. So he's, when he says, yeah, I love, picture, I love sermons uh, that have pictures in them. He says, like the boll weevil. So that's why another reason I have this reprise. I get to show this picture again. Okay, some of you are really anticipating. Don't peek in your notes and take a peek at that thing. It's right at the bottom of the first page. <laughs> this is the effects of sin. Okay, so in other words... King Cotton is going to be symbolic of the slave owner over our life. That which is holding us down is the power of sin. But then there's the effects of sin. If you continue in your sin, sin is delightful for a season. But King Cotton has a bull weevil. There is something in this bull that we are serving that is actually going to gnaw away and eat away at our life. And pretty soon we'll have nothing left but death. And we have Mr. Peanut, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in this story, there really is a Mr. Peanut. There is a Mr. Peanut in the history of our country, a guy who literally championed, very much like Jesus Christ championed our deliverance, a guy that championed the deliverance of the slaves from King Cotton. It's pretty amazing. And we have the bowl of peanuts, which we're going to define as grace. See, for each of us in here, many of us have heard the word grace But we have a funny understanding of what it means. If you've been discipled here, you're pretty uh, well-versed on what grace is. But a lot of us have this soft notion of grace where it's sort of like a hug. And so God sees us in our messed-up condition, and he comes up and offers us grace. Sort of gives us a, a squeeze and says, you know what, I love you anyway. Which I'm not saying that God doesn't love us when we're in our sin riddled condition. It's just that he loves us too much to leave us there. So if you, want to, if you want to say that he gives us a hug, he gives us a hug and a squeeze and then lifts us out of that muddened state. You see, God is in the business of rescue, not just patting us on the back and saying, oh, you know, I just love you even though you're a mess and even though your life is falling apart, even though you're dying. God is interested in giving us life. And so the bowl of peanuts is grace. The infamous bowl weevil. That which is born within the bowls of the cotton plant and ultimately devours it. Now, some of you probably, I mean, especially the ladies in here, have like a bag uh, in the bathroom uh, back home of cotton balls. Uh, Maybe some of the guys do too, I don't know. Uh, But I know there's a few girls in here that do, all right? Now, a cotton ball and a cotton bowl are the same thing. 
And so when we say a bowl of cotton, that's just the proper term for it. It's actually a cotton ball. That's what it is. It's a little ball that comes out of the cotton thing. It's a cotton ball. Okay, so inside that is the perfect environment. Cotton was the perfect environment. Inside that little bowl was the perfect environment for a bull weevil to thrive. And the same is true with the way we are. When we are born, we're born into slavery, and we're born uh, planting and harvesting cotton. That's just what we're used to. That's what we're familiar with. That's what our ancestors did. That's what they passed on to us, and that's what we do. But inside this bowl is a weevil, and this weevil is devouring our life. At first, cotton seems wonderful. It trades really well. It's the number one export in America. We're getting all our money from it. However, there's a weevil, and it's eating away at our crop. It's messing with our life. And so what starts out as a wonderful thing actually turns pretty dark pretty quick. There it is, Hudson. The weevil. Isn't that thing ugly? Do you want that in your soul? Didn't think so. I should have every week, I should have a really ugly microscopic creature and say, do you want that inside of you? You need Jesus. You know, that's just a good, a good strategy. King Cotton. Now, I know when you think of cotton, you don't think of a king. You don't think of some kind of governing authority. However, sin doesn't seem like a governing authority either. It sounds like an impersonal vibe out there. However, it's an operation. There's a series of things that is taking place in your body when you give the enemy control. When you, if you, you have a throne inside of your, your life, and when you sit on it and you say, this is my life and my body, it empowers something in you that is going to destroy you. It's like just sort of turning the bull weevil loose. It's called the flesh. And so the power of sin is controlling. You can want to change your direction. You can want to have a pure uh, cotton ball, and yet you can't control that. There is something more powerful than you at work in the human soul that is known as the flesh. And the power of sin is actually controlling you and inhibiting you from even doing that which you would want to do. And it's a very frustrating state. And that's what we were dealing with in America. You see, cotton was a huge commodity uh, in this time period between 1803 and 1937. It was the number one export out of our country. And Europe had gone cotton crazy. And we could grow it. And so Europe was paying big bucks for cotton. And if you were, had any brain at all and you had any land in America, what are you going to grow? You're going to grow that which is making the big buckaroos. And so all over our country, especially in the South, everyone grew cotton. Cotton was king. And as a result, everyone, even for generations, the only thing they knew how to plant and grow and harvest, one singular thing, cotton. Imagine being a slave. This is right there. I mean, 1860s was the time of the Civil War. So this is, you know, prime time slave territory here. A slave grew, growing up in the South knew how to plant, grow, and harvest one thing. That's all they knew. They knew cotton. And so, yeah, they were set free, but guess what? When they got their little plot of land, what do you think they planted? The only thing they knew. That was what was safe. That's what was selling. And so as a result, you have this cyclical pattern that was passed on from generation to generation. Uh, here's a little poem for you, just to get you in the mood. It's beautiful bowls and bales of rich value, the master controls. Of mud stills he prates and would haughtily bring the world to acknowledge that cotton is king. It's from a poem called The Gospel of Slavery. Slavery wasn't just the work of plantation owners 
enslaving men. That is true. That is in, in existence. However, there was something that controlled the plantation owners. The plantation owners were controlled by cotton. And as a result, that drove the industry. And to make cotton work, you know what they needed? They need slaves. You needed a ton of a workforce. And so as a result, slavery came about and grew and was magnified because of cotton. And so this became an ever-increasing enslavement. The plantation owners couldn't get away from it. However, there's a problem with cotton. I don't know if any of you have ever heard. You have to be sort of a farming type, agriculturally minded to understand some of these things. But cotton is a taker. In other words, you plant it and it sells really nice, but it robs from the soil every passing year. So cotton is going to take nutrients out of the soil. And so you can only imagine if every year you plant the same thing, what's happening to that soil? It's getting weaker and weaker. You know what happens when the soil gets weaker and weaker? Your crop gets smaller and weaker every year. So what's happening? They're enslaved to it. They can't go with anything else, but what's happening to their crop? It's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Doesn't that sound like your spiritual life? Why would you continue to sin? Why would you continue to plant that motion, that attitude, that action, say those words in your life? It's the only thing you know. That's the only way you know to live. And so as a result, you're in a pattern of defeat that is leading to a greater defeat with every passing year. Do you think it's going to make your marriage better in the years to come when you finally get married? With, if you keep in this direction? How do you think it's going to affect your kids? How about their kids? In other words, where do you think this is taking you? This behavior is actually undermining your life. It says the wages of sin is death. Old King Cotton had a dark side. It needed human slaves in order to be king. So, you know, when you look at American history and you hear about cotton, you probably have a completely nonchalant response to it. However, cotton was a big deal. And cotton had a bad side, a dark side to it. You needed slaves to make this system work. And so as a result, it was very difficult for the southern plantation owners who were dependent upon their cotton to give up their slaves. You can just imagine how intense this is. Even if you theologically might have been opposed to slavery, you can't give it up because your entire livelihood hinged upon those slaves working that ground to get that product out. And that's what it became. It became a cyclical pattern of enslavement, not just for the slaves, but for the slave owners. Stephen Dale says this, In 1860, the value of the slaves was... So this is just to show you how valuable slaves were in this time compared to everything else in America. It's quite fascinating. It was roughly three times greater than the total amount invested in U.S. banks at the time equal to about seven times the total value of all currency in circulation in the country, three times the value of the entire livestock population, 12 times the value of the entire U.S. cotton crop, and 48 times the total expenditure of the federal government that year. This was where the value was. So when Abraham Lincoln emancipated them, he was literally, it's like shooting yourself in the foot economically. This was a huge basis for all the eco economy in the South. And so to remove the slaves is a big deal. Well, just look at your economy of soul. Right now, everything hinges. You know, before you come to Christ, everything hinges on your ability to try and contain this system of order in your body, to try and look a certain way to the world around you, try and fool everyone into thinking you're healthy and you're fine. You're spending all your expenditure. If you were to give that up, what's going to happen? 
Well, who you really are is going to come out. They're going to find out that you're a fraud, that you're a fool. The whole thing is like shooting yourself in the foot, unless there's something else you can turn to. You see, this is a crisis point in our country. Most of us understand that the Civil War was a crisis point. What we don't understand is that economically, it was also a crisis point. We have huge things taking place in our country at this exact time, and no obvious solution. We have an entire workforce that has been now emancipated, and so legally they are not controlled, but they have nowhere to go. All they can really do is go back to their slave owners and work cotton. What do they do? They don't have skills. They don't have anything beyond this. And this is where our story begins. To keep cotton king, King Cotton mustn't lose its workforce. 1861, now this is right before the Civil War. We have a little guy named Georgie that's born. Now, he wasn't known as Georgie maybe, but for your sake I'm going to call him Georgie because now we know he's the little bitty version of George. A little boy named Georgie was born into slavery of, the slavery of King Cotton in Diamond, Missouri. And then in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issues an executive order declaring that all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. So Georgie is free from King Cotton. Now, I know it sounds strange because it's saying that, you know, he's, slave, he's free from being a slave under a slave owner. But technically, Georgie had good slave owners. They took good care of him and loved him as a little boy. And so not every slave was in a bad situation, slave owner-wise. Every slave was in a bad situation in their relationship to King Cotton. So though, just like us, we are set free. Did you know that your emancipation was done and accomplished legally written in the blood of Jesus before you were even born? In other words, that which sets you free has been accomplished. However, you still are born in slavery. You're still born subservient to something. And that's the same way Georgie was. Though he was born into a healthy home, his mom and dad are gone, and so literally he's like an orphan, a virtual orphan in 1863. And because of the kindnesses of his parents, who were his slave owners, they adopted him as their own and raised him with a good education, the best they could give him. And yet he was a little African-American slave child. In other words, he had it good, if you want to compare it with others, but... He was still enslaved, and his entire people were enslaved. 1863, Georgie, though free, is two years old and a practical orphan. Moses and Susan Carver adopted Georgie and raised him as their own child, teaching him the basics of reading and writing. So now we're going to pass time here, uh, and I think up to the point where Georgie is 31 years old. So Georgie grows up as a free man with a passion to help those under the rule and reign of King Cotton. He sees his people. He sees those that were born like him, and he recognizes that as of right now, they have no hope. The only thing they know to do is to harvest or to plant, to grow, and to harvest cotton. They have no solutions. They are not well educated even to come up with additional solutions. And for whatever reason, he was given an education. Now, it was a very hard education to come by if you study this guy's life. Very difficult because they gave him special schools. They wouldn't let him go into higher education. He was an African-American. He was a black guy. And they're not going to allow that. And so even though it was a hard-fought education, he was willing to scrap for it. He was hungry to learn, to know, so that he could give this education back to his own people. King Cotton and the freed slaves. When cotton is all you know, then cotton is what you continue to do even after you've been freed from its control. So let's think about our life as Christians. 
We come to Jesus, but what do we know how to do? Do you know how to live righteously? Do you know how to love? Do you know how to be kind and gentle? Know how to turn the other cheek? No, never done that before. What do we know how to do? We know how to sin. Yeah, we're really good at that. And so as a result, if though you are set free, you are never trained in how to live different, what do you do? You live as you've always lived. That's just how it works, and that's exactly what was happening in America. So the slaves are set free. Oh, that's noble, that's wonderful. But they were never trained how to live different. And so as a result, they're still living basically as slaves. They're living as a lower-class citizen in a country in which they're no longer a lower-class citizen because they don't know how to do anything different. So they're pleading with their, slave, their previous slave owners to hire them so that they can work their fields and grow what? Cotton. What's different about their life? Well, they're legally freed, but they're living the exact same life they were before. King Cotton has a blind spot. It depletes the soil, it takes away, constantly robbing from the nutrients, disabling the ground from actually producing anything good. The same is true with your life. When as a Christian you are set free, your life is new. But if you do not choose to yield up your life to Jesus and live the way he instructs you to live, what will happen is a weevil will continue to find its nest and its house inside of you, and it will destroy your life. You know that you can be a Christian who believes in Jesus and yet has a terrible marriage and a terrible family and whose life has fallen apart? How could that happen? That doesn't make any sense. It's because you have to actually change. It's called repentance. You cannot stay in your previous way of doing things. You have to give that up and start living differently, which, of course, is what discipleship is, which when the church grows weak in discipleship, what we tend to have is a whole bunch of people who have prayed a prayer but have never been taught how to change their life. King Cotton has a weevil. In 1892, the bull weevil arrives on southern plantations, completely undermining the cotton industry over the next 30 years. So not only has cotton been depleting the soil for all these years, and so all those southern plantations, the soil is getting weaker and weaker and weaker with every passing year. But now the bull weevil arrives, which is exactly what happens in our lives. At first, it's just a depletion of the soil, but then the weevil finally starts to show itself. And we begin to find that our life is literally falling apart Though we have legal paperwork showing that we are set free and we're no longer slaves, we're still living as such and receiving the effects of such. Georgie, the man with the plan. You know what his plan was? Try the peanut. You see, at first, that might not sound as crazy as it did back then. So if we go back to 1892, you need to recognize that If you came up to a group of black farmers and you said, hey, guys, I think I might have a solution for you. Try the peanuts. What they would say is, P-what? Peanut. P-E-A-N-U-T. Now, it has nothing to do with the ignorance of these guys because they were uneducated. If you had gone to a whole group of plantation owners and said, hey, guys, try the peanut, they would have said the P-what? No one knew what a peanut was. You know, at that time, it wasn't even a in the almanac of agriculture at the time as an existing possible crop for America. No one knew what it was except for Georgie. Georgie has spent his life coming to God and saying, God, I need a solution for my people. I know you care about them. 
and they have to be freed from cotton. There has to be another solution. There has to be something other than living under the thumb of sin. God, why is the church so weak today? Why is it that these people pray a prayer but their lives aren't changing? Why is it that we're still under the thumb of sin? It seems that you intend us to live triumphant. According to the word, that's exactly right. This is what Georgie was dealing with on the practical side for his people. Try the peanut. The peanut. I could say the goober, just to make it all the more hilarious. The peanut? Are you serious? You want us to try that? Could you imagine giving the demonstration? This is a peanut, and then the room breaks out in laughter. This is what is going to save us. A peanut? You have got to be kidding. Just in its very nature, a peanut looks funny. You know, uh, the far side. Do you guys remember the far side? Uh, it's, it was an old comic strip, and it was a guy named uh, Larson. Who, what was his first name? Gary Larson? Gary Larson. And one of the things Gary Larson once said is that the cow was the most intrinsically humorous animal. And so he'd always put cows uh, in his things. Cows standing, cows mooing, you know, doing all sorts of things. And they really are funny. You can sort of see Chick-fil-A picking up on that theme. <laughs> and yet, if you want to say what is the most intrinsically hilarious food you'd say the peanut. I mean, just think about its shape. It's just sort of like awkward, okay? And this is the solution, the peanut? People had never even heard of a peanut, let alone tasted a peanut. What do you do with a peanut? So what is special about the peanut? Now, remember, cotton takes away from the soil. You know what a peanut does? A plant that enriches the soil and sticks in nutrients instead of stealing them. So this peanut, a legume, is actually going to plant nutrients into the soul as it labors and as it grows, it's going to give. And what George Washington Carver said, hey guys, you're going to die unless we get good stuff in this new, in, into the soil again. And the peanut will do just that. So could you imagine the room of doubters looking back going, okay, so we have rich soil, but we don't have rich pockets. Who in the world wants to buy a peanut? No one even knows what it is, so I can have a whole bunch of peanuts, but no one to buy them. It's a good point, too. They're a great source of protein. Works as a food for people and as a food for animals. Doesn't it sound like something your mom would like? You know, it's like they enrich the soil and they're a good source of protein, honey. Okay, so that's a peanut. Your mom would love these things. But there was a problem. No one knew what a peanut even was, let alone how to grow one. So great idea, Georgie. But how in the world are we supposed to use that thing? We don't even know how to do that. We know how to plant one thing, and that's cotton. So Georgie had his work cut out for him because he knew how to plant these things and he knew how to grow them, but there was a good point that was being brought up and that, well, I'll go through this list and I'll tell you. 1896, the peanut isn't even recognized as a crop in the United States. Oh, and yet another problem. What to do with these piles and piles of unused peanuts? So peanuts, when they grow, they really produce. Right? So we have this nutrient-rich soil, and we have a whole bunch of protein. And what are you going to do with a pile of peanuts? Imagine if you take one of your rooms back home in your house and pack it full of peanuts. What do you do with that? And say you have no income, and all you have is that room full of peanuts. What are you going to do with that room? You could bag them up and try and sell them. The guy next door has a bag of peanuts, and he comes to you, too, at the same time. You're like, do you want to buy? Uh-oh. We got a problem. Everyone has peanuts. If, if everyone has peanuts, then peanut loses its value instantaneously, except for to feed you and your animals. I mean, your horse may really like them, but you need money in your pocket. And so as a result, though Georgie has a great solution here, there's a problem. His great solution 
doesn't seem to have a commercial value to it. In other words, all of us having big piles of peanuts is really good. And our, our, nutrient, our, we, our soil is now nutrient-rich. And when we eat them, we feel stronger because we get protein. However, we need money. I need a commercial value to these peanuts. 1896, Georgie, now all grown up and known as George Washington Carver. I'm sure those of you that know the story knew that ahead of time. But just in case, sets out to find the true power of the peanut. Okay, now we're going to get to my favorite part of the story by far. This is literally, and any of you that have studied George Washington Carver, you know. There's one moment in the story that is the game changer. This is where it is. I mean, all of his life and what he overcame to even get an education, an education with the entire intent of giving the strength of his education to his people. It's his entire motivation. Is he, want, and he was a very strong Christian man, a man of great prayer and depth of prayer. He wanted to bring glory to Jesus Christ, but he knew why he was here and he knew why he had what he had. It's so that he could give it to others. I mean, it's truly remarkable life. So George Washington Carver has a peanut. And he comes before God. George Washington Carver asks a simple question. Lord, what is your purpose for the peanut? Now, at first, that doesn't sound like a profound question. However, what George Washington Carver wants to know, see, he was a botanist. He understood the makeup of God's creation. That was his entire study. He loved to break down plants and understand everything about it. And he believed. Remember how, like, the Indian takes the buffalo and uses every part of it? You know, and that's, like, what makes a great Indian is they know how to take every part of the buffalo. Well, George Washington Carver would look at every single aspect of a plant and say, God, why did you put that there? Why is that there? Why did you include this? Why did you make it this way? He has questions that most of us would never even think to ask. And as a result, get this, God answered him. God would answer this man, this simple man who loved Jesus Christ and believed that this was his creation, and if he created it, then he knew why he created it that way. So who did he go to? He went to the creator himself and says, creator, why did you create the peanut? Because obviously this is the solution, but I need to know why you created this. Could you share that with me? Have any of you ever gone to God with something, probably not a peanut, and just laid it before God and said, God, I know you have a purpose. I know that you're not caught off guard by these circumstances, and you know that this is what I have. Leslie and I call it uh, what is in your hand. It is a simple principle that we refer to. And oftentimes, Leslie will even say to me in a situation, she says, what's in our hand? And I know what she means by that. It's the question that God asked Moses. What does Moses have to overcome the most powerful nation in the world at that time, which was Egypt? and to set God's people free. After all those years of slavery, I guarantee you, Egypt's not just going to give them up. And yet, God asked Moses a simple question. Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses looks, and he has a rod in his hand. And God says, throw that rod down. And it turns into a snake. He says, pick it back up. Whoa, you know that Moses, God used that rod for all the plagues? He parted the Red Sea with this rod. You see, God wants us to recognize that he has given us things in our life, and most of us never allow that question to come. What is that in your hand? What is that that you already have? So George Washington, is saying, George Washington Carver is saying, hey, guys, we have a peanut. Now let's go to God and say, God, why did you give us this peanut? How do you want to deliver a people that is enslaved with this? Could you give us an answer to that question? The answer from heaven. This is one of the most profound things as far as I'm concerned, in all history, 
in all the history books, this is one of the most exciting events that has maybe ever occurred, is God answering a question about a peanut. Why would I say that? Because what it shows is that God is interested in the smallest details of our lives. He, he knows why he created his creation. He knows where he has us in history. And he has an answer if we will simply come to him. So what comes of that but over 300 inventions using the peanut? If I were to say, can you name one of those 300 inventions that came out of that? And most of us can think of peanut butter. That's like our great thought that goes through it. By the way, I really like peanut butter. You know that I grew up on creamy peanut butter my entire life? And guess what kind of peanut butter I've always liked? Crunchy. And so you know that my brother grew up on creamy peanut butter his entire life? And you know what kind of peanut butter he likes? Crunchy. My sister the same. She likes crunchy. My mom likes crunchy. You know who bought our peanut butter? My dad. <laughs> so after all these years, you know that I asked my dad, I said, you know what, all of, I just realized that all of us like crunchy. You just like creamy. You've been buying creamy for us this whole time. You know what he said? He looks back at all of us in the room. He goes, you've got to be kidding. I like crunchy. <laughs> we ate creamy peanut butter all growing up. We need, you need to talk more as a family, I think. So over 300 inventions using the peanut, from peanut milk, which ironically, if we just go back 20 years, if, you, if I said peanut milk, all of us would go like, what? Like almond milk? Now we just have like coconut milk, almond milk. So now it's probably even normal sounding. From peanut milk to peanut paper to even peanut soap. 105 tasty food recipes using peanuts from peanut butter to peanut fla pancake flour to peanut brittle to instant coffee to mayonnaise to chicken substitute to peanut sausage to butterscotch to cheese pimento to sweet pickle. <laughs> Here's what's amazing. The African-American slave had no alternative but cotton. And he gives them, George Washington Carver says, try this, this will add to the soil and it's good protein rich, you're, you can eat it, your, your animals can eat it, and then they go, okay, but how do I make money? I'll get back to you on that. And could you imagine him coming back with a list of 300 things and their ingredients and their recipes for how to make them? Each of you pick something on this list and we can create an entire industry for our people out of the peanut. This changed the course of history. A peanut, but it wasn't just a peanut. It was a man who believed that God had a purpose and God desired to save. Remember, anyone that comes to God must first believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When we diligently seek him and say, God, I know that you have a purpose here. I know that you will reward me when I seek you. He does. And about 100 products specifically designed to help around the house and farm, including such things as cosmetics, could you imagine, your cosmetics are based in peanut. Uh, dyes, paints, plastics, gasoline, and nitroglycerin. The bait of cotton versus the brilliance of peanuts. Why would anyone go with cotton after they hear this? Why would anyone do that? Well, it's the same thing I could say to you. I could give you the good news. I could show you the life of fullness in Jesus Christ. I could show you the love that you could have, the joy, the peace, the life that is triumphant and vibrant, and yet you still choose sin. What? How could you? How could someone acquainted with the grandeur of heaven choose cotton when you have over 300 recipes? I mean, you could have sweet pickle tonight out of your peanut. 
What are you going to get but a weevil out of your cotton? In other words, why would any of us do this? And yet I just described each of our lives. In other words, this is where our habit is, and this is what we're familiar with. We're familiar with cotton. And so as a result, you know what a big choice it is for any slave to switch everything they know in their life and to go with something they've never tried. I know you can see the list and you can be impressed. It's like, we're going to make nitroglycerin. That's our business. And you can get so excited about it. However, when at the end of the day, you realize it's going to take an entire life change. If you really want to go with the peanut, you have to give up cotton. And cotton is a guarantee. You don't know how much cotton you're going to get, but you do know it's going to be there. And you know that there's an industry for it. And you know that there's a demand in Europe for it. Ah, and this is what's called repentance. You see, to live with Christ and to enter into the fullness of what he has for us in grace, you have to forsake your previous way, that which you're familiar with. It's hard. I'm just telling you, it's hard. It's hard to give up that which you know, but that which you know is killing you, and that's one thing you do know. Why wouldn't you forsake it to go with that which can bring life? Well, it's risk. High-level risk. It's called life, eternal life risk. However, I'm just going to tell you, it just makes far more sense, even logically, to give up on cotton, guys. The bait of self-effort versus the brilliance of God effort. You see, most of us are laboring over and over and over again trying to solve our own problem, trying to make our cotton crop grow better. We're trying to fix the soil, maybe add some manure to the soil this next year. We're doing whatever we can. However, no matter how hard we try, the boll weevil's not going away, and our cotton crop is getting weaker every year. You see, this is the cyclical pattern. In our own strength, we can try, but the secret of the gospel is it's not based on your effort to try and solve it. It's based on God's effort 2,000 years ago. You see, what's interesting is as we unfold this message, you're going to recognize where a bowl of peanuts comes from. It doesn't come from you farming and planting a whole bunch of peanuts. It comes from God farming, planting, growing, and harvesting that which he did on that cross 2,000 years ago and then supplying it to us. It's not by your work that you bring about peanuts. It's your work that brings about the weevil, don't get me wrong, and that whole bowl of cotton thing. However, what you need to forsake is your own doing and allow his doing to begin to work for you. You do have a job to do, by the way. It's not passivity that we are called to as Christians. It's active. It's called faith. You need to reach into that bowl and take what God has given you. The biblical idea of grace. So I've gone through that already, basically to help you understand that grace is not just a little hug or a side snuggle from God saying, you're all right. But it is actually God lifting us out of the mud, washing us off with his living river and cleansing us from all sin and then sticking his own life in us and animating this body and enabling it to do what it could never do on its own. So what Paul says about grace is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Which is an amazing thought to think that grace is literally power to live. We don't have that power in and of ourselves. That power is in Jesus Christ. It's called grace. And the way to get that grace, the way to get that ability to live, is found in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you a peanut-style version of that same scripture, okay? So this is sort of our, you know, Mr. Peanut version. 
but because of the bowl of peanuts, I am what I am. It's like, Hudson, how did you get so strong? Well, it's because of the bowl of peanuts that sits on our living room uh, coffee table that I am what I am. And his power-packed protein peanuts, which he made available to me on the coffee table, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than, than they all. Yet not I, but the, protein, the peanut protein which was working in me. How do you get so much strength? It's peanut protein. What do we say as Christians? It's grace. You see, God's working, God's laboring. He harvested it. He supplied it. And by faith, we reach out and take it. And when we do, it works in us. You ever notice that there's stages of development with a peanut? For instance, you can believe and know that that peanut will give you protein. It will satisfy your hunger. And you can just walk by it and go, yeah, I believe that. But if you don't take it, does it save you? Does that protein-rich substance inside that peanut offer you anything if you just mentally say, yeah, I believe that that could save me. I believe that could solve my hunger. What do you have to do? You have to reach in and grab it. What else do you have to do? You have to break off that husk. What else do you have to do? You have to take those little pods and go right into your mouth. What else do you have to do? You have to chew them. You have to exercise. It's called faith. Faith is not passivity. Faith is actually a doing. But it is not doing your own work. You're not growing cotton. You're not even trying to grow peanuts. You're taking his peanuts, that which he has supplied, and you are agreeing with them. You know what else you need to do? You have to actually do a swallow. You swallow and it goes into your digestive system. You know what else you have to do? You have to agree with them. The whole while it's in your digestive system, you can spit them back up. Instead, you have to allow them to remain inside of you. And what's going to happen? That protein and that nutrients in them is going to go into your body and make this body strong. How did it become strong? Was it your working? Did you build that crop? Did you make it? No, he did. He supplied it for you, but you still had to believe. And believe is an action. It is a doing. It is a very real world thing that we engage in. The biblical idea of grace. Wherefore we receive a kingdom, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So by that grace we serve God acceptably. So let's do a peanut style version of this. Wherefore we receive in a bowl of peanuts which cannot be moved from the coffee table. It's like stuck there. It won't go anywhere. Let us take and eat these power-packed, protein-rich peanuts, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So you want to live this life, dig your hand into that bowl and get some of that grace. See, God has supplied you everything you need. It's right there for the taking. How ridiculous to die of hunger right by the peanut bowl. That doesn't even make sense. Why would you do that? Introducing the bottomless bowl of peanuts. You see, what's amazing about a God bowl of peanuts? I mean, you have an Eric Ludy bowl of peanuts and there's like a bottom to it, okay? But a God bowl of peanuts, you could dig your hand in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you could put your whole body in, technically, and you still never get to the bottom. It's just like, it just never runs out. It's bottomless. You take one out and another one's supplied right in its place. So if you had access to the bottomless bowl of peanuts and knew that this, these peanuts were the energy and the strength, the protein punch that you needed to live this life in this body the way God commissioned you to do it. What would you do? Uh, I would hope that you would put your hand in the bowl and you would squeeze. You would grab. Now, would you grab one and say, thank you, thank you, I have my one now. Well, how ridiculous would that be? Would you just grab two, three? Some of you 
if you're really thinking this through, you're like, hey, man, I'm going to bring a, a lot of pockets, you know, one of those pocket, you know, whole things with like pockets all over, like even the pants with pockets, and I'm going to stuff it, and then I'm going to carry it out like this. I wouldn't blame you. That's the kingdom of heaven. You want to show honor to the work of Christ Jesus? Bring some pockets. You're going to stuff your life full of everything that he has supplied for you. You know what? I just have an idea for you. Just live by the bowl. Live in the bowl. Swim in it. We have access to it. And if you want to live your life, you stay close to that which will supply you everything you need. So, so many of them that it would be impossible to count them. Possible titles for this next section. We could call this next section the functionality of faith, the work of believing, how does faith work, how does one escape the wicked effects of the bull weevil and access the protein-rich benefits of the peanut life. So we are saved by grace, but through faith. So it's this combo package, not of the, just the peanuts. The peanut bowl is there, and that's the grace. But how do we access that grace? And that's called faith. So therefore, we need to combine these two movements. God has done the work, and he's supplied us with everything we need to be set free from our slavery to cotton. Everything we need from our slavery to sin and death. Everything we need from our cyclical pattern of defeat. Everything. But we must choose to no longer turn to that old way. We must give up our cotton, and we must repent and believe. But what does that look like with grace? How do we access that grace? So five modern options for peanut harvesting. So I'm going to give you some options of how we could harvest peanuts or how we could harvest the benefit from God's work. Note, the bowl of peanuts is filled to the brim and available to all who would simply take them. So that's the fact that we're working from. Now let's give some options. So we could go out and try planting peanuts ourselves. So you got a huge bowl right in the middle of your living room, but you could go out and try planting your own peanuts. Uh, let me give you another option. You, you think these things through, okay? What would be the wisest way to handle that bowl? Number two, go in and stare from across the room at the renowned peanut bowl, and maybe proximity will equate to protein impartation. Just sort of gaze at it. That's the protein bowl. That's where it comes from. I believe it. I believe it. And just by being close to it, maybe the protein will go through the air like a Bluetooth signal and, and overcome you. Number three, sing songs of peanut-saving grandeur. Oh, peanuts, I love you. You save. Oh, you've delivered me. Uh, now, just singing a song, is that going to do it? Well, I'm not going to ask that. These are your choices. I don't want to put a, a spin on any of the choices. Number four, memorize the recipe for making peanut butter. Join a peanut butter quiz team and earn a ribbon for your vast knowledge. <laughs> Number five, sniff the bowl and maybe the distinct peanut aroma will transfer the peanut's incredible virtue and power into your digestive system. <laughs> you see, well, I don't want to, you guys make a decision. Before I tell you, I don't, I don't want, to, I want you to genuinely move in the right direction here. So I don't want to sway you one way or the other. These are five options. By the way, there's, there's another option which makes a lot more sense. But that, you can still choose from these if you want. It just doesn't work. So how does one go from cotton mouth to peanut breath? <laughs> now, you're going to like this illustration. I've used this illustration uh, quite a few times at Ellerslie. Uh, and I know, again, this is for Hudson. Remember Hudson making comments about liking my little illustration? So this is a, a Ludi dedicated uh, sermon. Uh, that's our, our big heavy guy, okay? He's not very healthy. I'm just going to put it that way, okay? I don't want to make any judgment on his weight. 
he's just not very healthy, okay? Now, the reason he's not very healthy, and this is what's called cotton mouth, okay? This is our equivalent of living in sin. You see, that which is supplied to us, we don't know about. If no one has ever told you about the pile of peanuts over there and that peanuts are available for you, well, then how would you ever go after them? Why would you ever even look to peanuts as a form of salvation if no one ever mentioned it to you? How will they know unless they hear? Okay, so this guy has never heard. All he knows about is cotton. So therefore, his gaze is on cotton, and all he's taken into his mouth is cotton. And that's his life. And we're going to call this ignorant unbelief. So in, in other words, it's not that this guy is making even a choice to not believe. It's just that he doesn't know. Number two, we're going to call this um, still cotton mouth. Now, this is where a lot of us get confused because we now hear about the peanuts, and yet what are we still eating in our life? Uh, the, uh, the cotton. And what are our eyes still fixed on? Uh, the, uh, the, the cotton. How many of us come to Christ, yet we're still fixed on what we're losing or what we're giving up, and we fixate on that which we still want in life? And as a result, what are we still eating? We're eating that which destroys our life, and we still have a bull weevil. Meanwhile, our salvation is sitting there for the taking, but we're not reaching out and taking it. We think that by somehow praying a prayer or being in proximity or being near it and singing a song about it equates to the power of it in our life. However, this is where we end up, which is we're going to call it stunted, non-working, unrepentant belief or knowledgeable unbelief. You're functioning as an unbeliever. Why? Because you're not eating the peanuts. If you really believed those peanuts were your salvation, what would you do? You'd eat them. So as a result, this is knowledgeable unbelief. This is a very dangerous state. And look at the guy. Has he gotten any healthier, by the way, of knowing about the peanuts? No, he's still rather large, okay? Now, look at option number three. Whoa, that guy just slimmed down. We have the athletic version of this guy. Now, what is the difference? This is called repenting and believing, a.k.a. true Christianity. What has he done? He has forsaken the cotton. He has left it, and where, where is he focused? He's focused on God's solution, and what is he eating? The protein. So as a result, his body, his life in actuality is beginning to show fitness, show that what faith brings about, which is real world change in our being. The confusion over works. One of the things many of us struggle with in this is, well, isn't that guy doing some work? I mean, we're not supposed to work. Well, where does that come from? Ephesians 2 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, so many of us are afraid of doing anything. We don't want to work because we're not saved by that. And so as a result, the protein bowl or the bowl of peanuts could be sitting in front of us and we're like, well, I don't want to reach out because that would be a work. And so as a result, it'd be very important here for me to at least give you an understanding of what is taking place here. Because in James 2, so you have Ephesians and then you have James. This has tripped a lot of people. It says, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And of course, all of us in here, we go, yeah, I think it can. So what's, what's James saying? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So if I stopped right here, I could leave you completely confused. In other words, which one is it? Are we saved by works or not? Well, let me answer it by introducing two different types of working. You see, in, in a semester, what I'll do is I'll, I'll show that everything in the Bible is sort of divided into twos. You have one and two. So over here, you have the first man. You have like Adam. And over here, you'd have Jesus. Over here, you'd have Old Testament, law. Over here, you'd have New Testament, grace. You have twos. And the first is explained in the Old Testament and in the New to not work. It does not bring about the salvation. It shows you your need for salvation is what it does. So if you continue to live over here, you cannot be saved. This work over here of harvesting cotton does not save you. You can have a good attitude. You can sing songs as you do it. However, you're dying over here. So what you need to do is repent of the first work and do the second work. The first work is self-righteousness. The first work is trying to win God's approval in and through your own behavior. The second work is trusting his work. I know it doesn't sound like much of a work, does it? But that's our work. Our work is to believe. So the work of the law, this is the first. Leaning on Adam's ability, also known as the old man. This is your, your genealogy. Your lineage comes from this man. Leaning on Adam's ability and efforts to save, also known as the flesh. So this is the equivalent of going into the fields and trying to get peanut protein out of cotton farming. And what does God say? Uh, there isn't any peanut protein in that cotton. No, no, you're not going to please me by trying to keep the law, guys. That law is only given you to show you that you're getting weaker and weaker and there's a boll weevil. You wouldn't have known it unless I'd given you the law. And now because I've given you the law, I'm showing you you need peanut help. In other words, the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to our need for Jesus. Okay, now there's a second work in the Bible. We're going to call it the work of faith. Leaning on Jesus' ability and efforts to save, also known as the Spirit. So this is the equivalent of going to the peanut bowl, reaching in and gripping peanuts, cracking them open, sticking tasty, protein-rich peanuts into your mouth, chewing, swallowing, and digesting that saving goodness. Now that is a work that saves. But it is not your work. It is his work that you are agreeing with. And that is the work of faith. And it's called saving faith. There is a faith that doesn't actually save. It's knowledgeable, unrepentant, unbelief. You actually are not actually believing in that protein that it really is doing it. You're still believing and putting your confidence in the cotton. But when you repent of that and you turn into Jesus, that work is actually the work that saves. It's not really a work as we would understand it. But it is a work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's agreeing with God. The bowl of peanuts. It is bottomless and sufficient. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. One of the ways that Charles Spurgeon likened this statement, because the statement is so over-dramatized as far as what it is, when the concept of sufficient means you could never run out. So he was likening it to a fish in the ocean being concerned that he would run out of water. And then God's saying, oh, no, no, fishy, don't worry. My, my ocean water is sufficient for thee. 
And that understanding for us to recognize that the sufficiency is so grand that we never need fear running out of the grace of God. Also, this bowl of peanuts is perfectly suited to meeting our every need. See, one day you're going to take that, and it's for you were falsely accused, maybe, and you needed to have a right attitude and forgive someone. The next day you have a financial need, and you can say, well, I think protein only works to help me with having a good attitude. No, no. Protein, this protein, this grace is good for any situation. So you heard of George Washington Carver's 300 inventions? How many inventions do you think there are of grace? God, why did you give me this? What is this for? What is this peanut for? Every situation you could possibly need. You need a sweet pickle? God has one for you. You need nitroglycerin? God's got it. All in the same gift on the cross. Everything is wrapped up in this one gift of grace. Everything that you need for life and godliness somehow miraculously comes out of the same gift. You mean it can help me with my relational issues? Yes. It can help me with my financial issues? Yes. It can help me with my health issues? Yes. Sounds preposterous. I recognize it. However, in history, we have a peanut turned into 300 different recipes. Should give you enough of a clue to say that God has thought this through. He knows everything we could possibly need, and he has supplied it all in his gift on the cross. Here you go. He has filled the bowl. For every situation you have in life, we all go to the same bowl. If you need food, milk, paper, soap, cosmetics, dyes, paints, plastics, gasoline, nitroglycerin, rubbing oil, emulsion for bronchitis, quinine, laxatives, hand lotion, face cream, shampoo, shaving cream, insecticide, rubber, linoleum, insulating boards, and hundreds more things, and a hundred more things beside, you've got it all in the peanut. You guys should just look up this week all the things that are, were invented by George Washington Carver. They're hilarious. I mean, if we were to just read through three, it just takes too long. If we were to read through 300 things, we just laugh out loud. I mean, uh, I'm not even going to read some of those again, but they're pretty funny. We have only just begun to see the possibilities of the peanut bowl. So listen to this. This man in 1929 says this. This is right at the close of King Cotton's reign. Cotton is now out, and the peanut has officially transitioned in and saved the South. At present, not a great deal has been done to utilize Dr. Carver's discoveries commercially. He says that he is merely scratching the surface of scientific investigations of the possibilities of the peanut and other southern products. He's just scratching the surface, guys. Is it possible that we have hardly begun to even scratch the surface of what grace can be used for in our own lives? And that we are still in certain aspects of our life going back to old slave behavior instead of functioning in new man mentality. You see, we have everything we need for every situation in life. Lord, what is your purpose for all this amazing grace? You know, I've been pondering this at a, at a greater level. God, what is your purpose for my marriage with Leslie? God, what is your purpose? You see, God has used my marriage with Leslie to impact the world. And yet, what if I freshly come to God and say, God, what is your purpose? I don't just want peanut butter. There's 299 other reasons too. I'd like to know what those are. God, why did you give me these six kiddos? God, why have you given me this church? What is your purpose? I want you to pause 
as we're closing this, and I want you to begin to allow God to set a peanut bowl in front of you and for you to recognize that there is no situation in your life that can't be met with that peanut, with those peanuts, that grace, and also the potential use of what God has given us on the cross so far exceeds anything you could dream or imagine, ask or think right now. Exceedingly abundantly beyond is the term in scripture. All we could ask or think. God, why did you give me this? Take your worst crisis that you're facing right now. Ask him. It might be sort of funny shaped, like a peanut. Sort of embarrassing if you were to show it to the rest of the room in here. It's like, God, I'm really struggling with this. You could set it before him and say, God, could you make this into something that will save the South? God, could you transform this? Because this is what he's in the business of doing. He loves to take what the enemy is meant for evil and convert it. Take it. The enemy was ruling the South. Never had there been such a degradation of humanity. And yet out of that came such an amazing picture of the gospel. This man gave his life to educating his own people and seeing them transformed to no longer be beasts, but to be men of dignity and honor that changed the world in which they lived. May we taste of that transformation. No longer slaves, but truly set free to showcase the glory of God in and through our lives. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.